we have to normalize talking about burnout, but we have to denormalize the culture that causes it. So it's a workplace problem. This is not an individual problem that's impacting a workplace. This is the workplace impacting people's lives with the culture and the way we do things. So we have to start, yes, we yes, we have to take care of each other. Yes, we have to have in, individual interventions for keeping ourselves well, but you can't self-care your way out of this culturally right? We have to start changing the culture to make a difference. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of An Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Today, I am so pleased to be joined by Dr. Rebecca Pope Rourke, a coach, speaker, facilitator, and educator. Rebecca has recently been appointed as the very first director of the Office of Faculty Professional Development at Georgia Tech, where she coordinates efforts for all non-teaching related professional development for faculty. The author of two books, her most recent, Unraveling Faculty Burnout, Pathways to Reckoning and Renewal, was just released this past September by Johns Hopkins University Press, and it is generating a lot of buzz and discussion. So we will include a link to Rebecca's full bio in the show notes. But for now, Rebecca, it is such an honor to welcome you to the Ingenious You community. Thanks so much for having me, Melissa. We like to start by finding out something about our guests. And in your case, you've had a distinguished academic career and recently made a pivot that has led to your very quickly becoming becoming recognized as a national thought leader on the topic of faculty burnout. And you host a podcast. I love the name of your podcast, The Agile Academic. So can you tell us how you wound up here and what, what's the backstory? Um, I've always been kind of an academic at heart. Higher education is always where um, I have felt most myself. Um, first as a student, obviously, and then in different pursuits, graduate students, um, spent a couple of years in California doing marketing communication in Silicon Valley to test that, test those waters um, and realized that I, I, my heart was in higher education and that I needed to be in higher education. So I went back and got my PhD, which is in rhetoric and professional communication. <clears throat> and then following that, I taught at an inst uh, a teaching uh, liberal arts institution in North Carolina for 12 years um, as a tenure track and then tenured faculty member doing the usual things that tenure track and tenure faculty members do at teaching institutions. Um, maybe doing it a little bit harder than I should have. And um, I was, to be honest, fell into a serious bout of, of work-related burnout um, about 10 years into my career as an academic. And that was a really challenging experience for me. And we'll talk more about that as we talk about the book, because uh, the book kind of recounts a lot of that experience. Um, but it, it, after a lot of um, self-care, a lot of therapy, in all honesty, a lot of work on myself um, for a couple of years, realized that it was time to make a change out of a teaching position and moved. Um, we was I was lucky enough to find a position at the Center for Teaching and Learning at Georgia Tech, which is a completely different world than where I ha had been. I'd been doing a lot of facilitating workshops based on my first book, Agile Faculty of Productivity Strategies. Um, so I was very interested in faculty development at that point and was was happy to make that transition um, into a different role. I was there for about two and a half years when the role that I'm now in, Director of the Office of Faculty Professional Development, became available. And that 
that really, it, it was time, I think, to make the pivot really fully away from teaching for a while. And a lot of the work that I had been doing had been focused on productivity, writing, faculty writing, um, on, and on burnout specifically um, more recently. So it made sense to move into that into that position. Um, you mentioned the podcast. The podcast was just kind of a lark that came out of the pandemic. Um, I was feeling kind of isolated and was seeing all these great conversations on Twitter. So I just started reaching out to people on Twitter <laughs> and saying, hey, do you want to have a conversation? Um, and those turned into the podcast. And there's some really compelling and wonderful interviews. I hope your listeners will check out the podcast because some of those, the, all of the women that I've, that I've spoken with are just amazing. So it's been a, it's been a fun couple of years. Um, if you can say the last couple of years had any fun elements to them whatsoever. Um, but that, my career has definitely been on an interesting trajectory for the last few years. So it's, it's been a bit of a ride. Congratulations on the book. Um, and it's obviously resonating with many people who are resonating with your experience. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that your book is so deeply personal, I think is part of uh, the, the reason behind its success and the fact that people are responding to you and saying, you're describing the experience that I'm having or that I have had. So um, can, you, can you say something about what led you to share your story in such an open and vulnerable way. I can't imagine that that was an easy decision to make. It's it's interesting how it really came about. It, uh, it was a couple of kind of parallel paths happening um, as part of my therapy journey and really working through the burnout and, and the struggles that I was having. Um, I started writing my experience, just kind of vignettes from the experience that I was having um, that that seemed like important touch points to the experience. And those were just for me. Um, I had been, I am a writer by nature and because of the burnout, I hadn't been writing for a long time. Um, so being able to sit down and write something again was very nurturing for me. So getting those stories out and getting some of those, those vignettes out was a way for me to process some of the things that had happened and to understand what was going on and how I was feeling. Um, Cause I'm not someone to that point who had been very in touch with her emotions, I would say. So it gave me a way to process a lot of what I was going through. Um, and at the same time, as I was as I was kind of going through my experience, I went to a conference. Um, I was on medical leave at uh, at, at one point, um, took a semester medical leave for my burnout was so severe that it was causing health problems. Um, but I had already paid for a conference. So I just went to visit with friends um, for this at this conference. And at, at that point, I was I wasn't feeling ashamed of it anymore. Um, there was a lot of shame associated with it initially, but I was on medical leave and I just told people that. <laughs> you know, hi, how are you? I'm, you know what, I'm going through a burnout and I'm on medical leave right now, but I'm working through it. And it was amazing and kind of sad how many people, once I said those words, either were there to share their own experience or someone who had been close to them or was close to them in their, in their work experience. Um, so pretty much everyone had a story and I missed most of the sessions because I was talking to people in the hallway or in the lobby about burnout related issues. So as I thought about it, it, it became one of those things that you just kind of see that no one's really talking about this, but everybody's experiencing it. So how do we, how do we have that conversation? And as a writer, 
And as I had been writing the vignettes, it made sense that maybe this was a book, that there was something, that there was larger, there was a larger context here. There were, uh, my voice was not the only voice that needed to be heard. Um, and it kind of developed from those, from those tracks. Well, when, when you were on the front end of experiencing burnout, as, as you know, there was virtually no attention being given in higher ed at that point in time. So it really did take a remarkable courage on your part uh, to, to come to terms with this, to be honest with yourself. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how you did in fact come to terms with your experience, what, what some of the signs and the symptoms were that caused you to have the most concern and then what some of the specific, uh, specific steps were that you took to begin to uh, address the burnout. Mm -hmm. One of the kind of insidious things about burnout is that we don't talk about it. So we don't have a language to be on the lookout for it in ourselves or in our colleagues, but also it causes, it's not, it, the World Health Organization doesn't define burnout as a mental illness. It defines it as a syndrome. So a collection of symptoms. And what I was experiencing was a collection of symptoms. And the symptoms that I knew and understood were depression and anxiety because I had experienced those all my life. So I knew those things were happening. Um, I was also in this shame spiral because I was so far away from my writing. I couldn't write anymore. I hadn't been able to write for months. And that was um, just daunting to me. Um, and then I was, I also found myself and one of my key kind of symptoms of burnout was I was really disillusioned about teaching. Um, almost completely. Um, and I have always been a teacher's teacher, you know, being in the classroom was where, you know, I belonged for 20 years and it, to, to feel that way about teaching and to feel so negatively about my students who are wonderful growing human beings, you know, doing what human beings at that age do, um, was very concerning to me, um, very concerning. Um, so I, I just, I happen to have a, I think a, a physical or something. And, you know, they do the screenings for depression sometimes. And, and I was just honest at that screening and my general practitioner recommended a therapist. And I said, okay, I should probably do that. I sat on that phone number until my husband took it from me a couple of months later and called and made an appointment. Um, and it was then when I explained um, kind of what I was feeling. And at that point, you know, and I talk about this in the first chapter of the book, the experience in that in that room with that therapist the first time was very much really me trying to convince her that I just needed ADD medicine so I could focus because if I could focus everything would be okay if if I could write again if I could grade again if I could teach the way I used to teach again everything would be fine there was nothing else wrong with me it was just this focus issue and I yes I was depressed and she asked me some questions, you know, how therapists do, <laughs> and you know, um, you know, kind of got in, we were having this kind of series of questions and she, she asked me, how long have you been miserable at your job? And I said something like seven years. Um, and that it was that, it was that moment where I really just kind of stopped and said, okay, wow, right. This is my dream job. This is the job that I have always wanted, um, at, with, at a wonderful institution with wonderful colleagues and amazing students. Am I miserable? What's wrong with me? Um, and she said, you know what, you don't need ADD medicine. You're, you're burned out and you're probably so burned out that you might not come back from it if you don't take care of yourself soon. And we need to deal with this. And then we had to deal with it. So how did we deal with it? A lot of therapy. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'll be, I'm fully honest and, and open about that. Um, I still, still do therapy regularly for, um, for the depression and anxiety and the burnout. Um, cause I want to stay on, um, stay on a good path. Um, for me, it, it took changing jobs. Um, I was really far gone in my burnout. There's um, the Maslach burnout inventory is the, the research, um, the research instrument that's most validated um, for, for identifying different, different levels of burnout. Um, it's not a clinical diagnostic tool, but a research tool. Um, and when I took that at the beginning of my burnout, um, right, right after that first therapy session, I was off the charts. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was clear that things needed to change. And after a while we, and my husband and I decided that it was probably time to make a big change. So, and we were lucky enough to be able to do that. Yeah, no. And what a great change you have made. Um, and also, um, being able to then focus and get this book out, which is obviously, uh, helping a lot of people. Were you surprised when your therapist, uh, named this as burnout or did you have an inkling did you, did you kind of think that might be what was going on? It's funny because I didn't, I didn't have any language for it at the time. Like it didn't, it yeah. didn't even occur to me that that was a possibility that my job was impacting my health. This didn't even occur to me. Um, but as I was flipping through notes for some articles that I had wanted to write when I wasn't being able to write, I found in the middle of one of the pages, the word burnout circled with a question mark. Mm. I don't remember writing it. I don't remember when I wrote it. Um, but it had come across my radar at some point. Um, so when she said it out loud, um, it, it was a wake up call and, yeah. and, you know, as academics do, you run to the research and you look things yeah. up and you read as much as you can. Um, and then it just, it was, it was undeniable. Yeah. Well, it also, it also strikes me that it must've resonated with something deep inside of you that you were able to then, uh, you know, reorient yourself, uh, and, push yourself forward, um, as opposed to, you know, denial or, you know, the other, the other kinds of, uh, ways that you could have responded. So from, from your experience and observation, and I think I know the answer to this based on what you said (laughs) about your experience at the conference, but, uh, how big a problem is faculty burnout in higher education? Do you think now? Huge. Huge. I think it was, I think it was endemic before the pandemic. Um, I think, you know, we've been, higher ed as an industry has been in retrenchment and losing funding and, you know, experiencing so many ups and downs with enrollments and, and just so many cultural and social and economic and political attacks that so many of us at, at all types of institutions have have lived in some state of, oh my God, what's next? What's going to happen next? And how do we do more with less? And then how do we do more with even less? Because that will just become the norm. That bar will just keep going up. Um, so I think that it was already a problem. It was already a problem. And we have studies that show that. Um, but I think the pandemic obviously just shot it through the roof um, for so many different reasons. Um, and when we talk about burnout, we talk specifically about workplace-oriented stress. Um, the, the World Health Organization defines it as, as a workplace syndrome, cause syndrome of um, unrelenting stress that has not been successfully managed. Um, so we focus on, on the, the workplace piece of it. What is it about the higher ed workplace mm-hmm. uh, that is such, such a, a, a good breeding ground mm-hmm. for burnout, even without the pandemic? 
Yeah, it's a lot of things. And I, there, I have a chapter in the book on this too, because I think it has a lot to do with what we might kind of classify as academic capitalism. Um, yeah. So it, capitalism has is dominating our industry um, in ways that we may are not acknowledging um, in it, you know, um, and the, yeah, that's economic, of course, but it's also in the way we work with each other, right? So, you know, productivity is the name of the game. The more productive, the better. Um, at what costs? We're not talking about that. We're just talking about high levels of productivity that causes competition. And when you're in a constant state of competition with your colleagues, it's difficult to find community. Um, so that causes problems. It causes, you know, you get exacerbated aspects of perfectionism and imposter syndrome that make it miserable for people to do the work that they do um, and be psychologically safe. So there are just, the conditions are rife. Um, there's, there's, there's this also this sense that higher ed is a calling, that fewer called and fewer still will make it. You fewer still will get that holy grail of a job um, or a tenure track job even. Um, and that, you know, that was one of the things that, that, caused so much shame for me was that I had the perfect job, what I had wanted my entire life, and I was miserable, and someone else could have that job, um, and I was kind of holding on to it um, when I didn't really want it anymore, um, so it's it's really that sense we get, if we, if, if our work is a calling, you will give everything to your calling. Yeah. You there's there's no there's no line there. You will just keep working. You will work all the time. It will constantly be in your mind. Um, so that combination of calling and academic capitalism is just a perfect storm. Well, and I wonder, as somebody, I have worked at mission uh, mission related colleges my entire life. Resource constrained mission related colleges, which are notorious for. Um, uh, how shall I say this? Uh, taking advantage is, I guess, the the sure. maybe the the not so positive way. Taking advantage of people's sense of calling and mm -hmm. the willingness that people will have to burn the the candle at both ends on behalf of that calling and on behalf of the mission to their own personal detriment. Mm -hmm. So, is that is that a unique experience? That's definitely a, a factor. Um, I think that. But I think that that shows up, in, you know, for some people, that's the mission driven. For some people, it's the research imperative right? Yeah. And, and the grants driving them, you know, there. So there's some piece of it, I think, at every institution or every type of institution that we see, certainly with mission driven institutions, um, we we have a. Yeah, I, I don't think there I don't think there's an easy or way to say that. Then yes, we're going to take advantage of people because people can be taken advantage of. Do I think that administrators are maliciously doing it? No, of course not. Um, yeah. You know, it just it's it's so embedded in the way we've always worked and the way the additional capitalism has pushed higher education um, to function that it's just it's just embedded at this point yeah. unless we we start pointing it out. And thank you for pointing that out. I I don't want to leave that impression either that um, that administrators are, you know, uh, doing this intentionally. Mm -hmm. However, I do think the um, you know you have a a number of different things that are intersecting, particularly mm -hmm. right now, given the um, you know the uncertainty around uh, economics and everything else mm -hmm. uh, affecting the, cliff. the mm -hmm. demographic cliff. Um, and so leaders, administrators are, you know, understandably very, very worried. 
mm -hmm. uh, about the future of the institution and uh, and then you have folks that are you know giving their all to do everything they can um, and anyway so um, mm -hmm. all of that is to say I think you are saying yes this is a very big problem <laughs> faculty <laughs> burnout in higher ed now can yeah. we talk a little bit about women in particular mm -hmm. and I know you write about this in the book women's experiences with burnout are are they different um it's it's interesting so the research is not overly conclusive um that it impacts men more than women um some of the research does show that it impacts us differently um so there are as part of that definition there are three characteristics of burnout that are kind of the the diagnostic kind of characteristics there's um exhaustion cynicism or depersonalization and feelings of reduced professional efficacy. Um, so the some of the research that I've read shows that the exhaustion piece tends to show up be the, the dominant piece. You need all three of them to have that burnout, um, but the, the exhaustion tends to show up more in women. Um, in men, they're more likely to revert to cynicism and depersonalization. Now that's only a few studies. It's not. It's not huge, um, but one. I, and I personally didn't necessarily set out to write a book about women faculty burnout. Um, it. It was. It was a process that just it kind of ended up that way. And I there I think there are reasons for that. When I initially put out a call for people's stories and. Um, you know, I had I had a, a great mix of folks, you know, who were interested in, in submitting, but by the time it came to actually submitting the people who were able to follow through were mostly white women um and you know i had i had a really honest talk with my editor about this you know what you know this clearly isn't the book that i set out to write <laughs> you know i'm not writing the white woman burnout book um but it it told us a lot about psychological safety it told us a lot about who feels the agency to be able to speak about this right now and who doesn't, um, where people might be experiencing so much additional emotional labor that going here is not something that they can do, even though it might resonate with them. Um, so I ended up doing a lot of, of outreach and interviews and talked to a variety of different women on the subject. So we did narrow it into women. Um, but but women were willing to talk about it in ways that that men were not. You have the experience. You've completed most of the coursework in a doctoral program, but you have not completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation, status behind with Baypath University. Our innovative Doctorate of Education in Educational Leadership ABD degree completion program makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started. Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way from your dedicated faculty advisor to your small dissertation seminar group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. 
With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu edd. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. Are there some are there some themes or uh, things that you learned about the experience of women faculty that contribute to their burnout that that looks a little bit different than sure. what you think might be the case for men in particular? Yeah, yeah there's several things, and I think um, you know one of the biggest and the most obvious is that women tend to have more care duties than men do, um, so family duties um, or outside care duties. So that adds an additional layer of stress and fatigue um, and um, feelings of shame and guilt for not working hard enough. So that adds that adds a layer. Um, I think, you know, another aspect that came out of the work, I think is definitely emotion, emotional labor, additional emotional labor, um, additional service load as well. So women are, we know that women are much more likely to spend more time with students, um, to be more emotionally attached, um, to, you know, experience some secondary trauma from working with students. Um, we know that women will often take on more service loads than our male colleagues will. Um, so the, in some ways, the calling is again, um, causing the problem, right? Because we, women have committed in certain ways and we're, we're committed in different emotional ways, perhaps than our male colleagues are. Um, so that leads us potentially into situations, um, of additional emotional labor and service load that cause additional <laughs> emotional labor. Um, so I think there's a, there's a bit of a catch 22 there as well. Well, and it, it, it raises the question of boundary setting as yeah. well and uh, whether that's a skill that women uh, maybe have not honed mm -hmm. uh, or are not willing to exercise uh, to the same extent that men do I don't I don't know is is that something you've you observed it's not something that I observed but in doing some research more recently I I do think that you know we're not taught to do certain things and you know we're not taught to feel content about what we do and we're not taught how to say no and we're not we're not taught that there are variations between yes and no um right so you know the the idea that someone comes to you and says you know do this it's you know, a dean comes to you and says be on this committee there are variations of things that you can say in response to that um that aren't you know this is not if i say no i'm not going to get tenure or if i say no i'm not going to get renewed or whatever it is right so we don't really talk about the shades between that of how we can negotiate some of that labor um and i think that um if we if we did a better job having conversations about that um things like that i think it would be helpful mm -hmm. uh you've written that having endured burnout you more easily see it in others and i wanted to to ask you about this you know what what is it specifically uh that you see that might cause you concern for mm -hmm. others so for those of us who work around faculty every day mm -hmm. what are what are some things that would help us see this um yeah. either in ourselves or in others 
Yeah, and I think the easiest place to start is those three W uh, World Health Organization characteristics. So the first one is exhaustion. And this is, we're all exhausted. It's the end of the semester as we're recording this. <laughs> People are tired. Absolutely. We're all done with the semester. Um, but, you know, this is exhaustion that permeates everything. Um, it's emotional, intellectual, physical. I think we start looking for um, ways that the exhaustion is causing physical problems, health problems. I was always sick and I was always claiming it was my allergies, I, you know, and, and I didn't notice it, even though my colleagues around me noticed it. Um, so, so physical exhaustion, emotional exhaustion, um, that, that de-cynicism, that cynicism, you know, that we see, we see this a lot this time of year on Twitter, for example. You know, people who are castigating their students for doing something ridiculous or whatever it is. And, you know, I, I joke kind of that, you know, sometimes those people really are just assholes, but a lot of times they could just be burned out and they don't know how to handle it. And it's coming out in that cynicism in a public way. Um, so that's another thing. I think if that, if cynicism is an unusual behavior for that person, you know, <laughs> um, some people kind of are, are naturally cynical, but, and then I think that, you know, really that third characteristic is, is questioning what's the point? Like, am I making a difference? You know, is, am I doing anything? Is it, is it worth doing what I'm doing when someone is really questioning that? Um, and, and they are, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, great colleagues and, you know, hard workers and, and loving their students and doing their research. Um, you know, when you start to feel like, what's the point very deeply, like you feel it in your bones, like, what is the point of me doing this? Am I making any difference whatsoever? I think those are some signals to look for. And then how would you counsel somebody? If, if your colleague, you're seeing these things in a close colleague, uh, what would be helpful? Yeah, I think it's, I, it's a, it's a tricky conversation, right? I mean, and I, another thing we're not always trained in is crucial conversations. How do we have those conversations? You know, I, for, in my own case, when I did ex talk to, there were two senior colleagues in my office suite at the time, and they had been worried about me for a long time, but didn't tell me that until after I told them that I was experiencing burnout and going on medical leave. Um, so, you know, what would have happened if those senior colleagues had talked to me beforehand, had just sat me down and say, we're worried about you. Um, you know, you're working really hard and we appreciate all that you do, but you're also sick a lot. And, you know, maybe it's okay to take a break every once in a while, or, you know, had, had talked to the chair and said, you know, maybe she needs a little break from this committee structure or something. Um, that might be going too far, depending on, on the kind of relationship that you have with your colleagues. But, you know, I think it's, it's, if you come at it from a place of I'm concerned about you as a human being, not I'm concerned about your productivity, right? I think so. I think it comes, it comes, it comes in the approach, um, and I think it comes in, you know, not uh, sneak attacking someone. You know, take them out for a cup of coffee and just, you know, say how are you doing? You know, you seem like you're, you know, you seem like you're struggling a little bit. How can we, how can we support you? Yeah, you, it, it, it is tricky, it, it, particularly mm -hmm. if there's a power balance yes. or imbalance right. uh, in the conversation. But if it's just another colleague, um, you know, I, I, what I'm hearing you say is that it, it would, would be, could be helpful to at mm -hmm. least provide the opportunity for somebody to, um, yeah. to, to talk, um, yeah. express what they're feeling. Um, Even say the word burnout. I think that, you know, we don't. Yeah. We don't 
when I was experiencing it, nobody was talking about it. The words were not, you know, coming out. There was some, there was literature, but it was in the literature. It wasn't, you know, we weren't reading right. widely about it. Um, you know, it was popping up here or there. Um, so I didn't have language for it. I didn't have, you know, a way to explain it. Um, you know, and cause I think that there's shame associated with what burnout does to your brain in a sense of it, it feels like you can't do your job anymore. And there's so much shame attached to that because that's not something that you want to show in higher education, some sort of quote unquote weakness or that you can't quote unquote hack it anymore in that competitive environment. Um, mm -hmm. So it's something that you hide. Um, and, you know, that obviously that just makes it worse. So, you know, if, if the words are out there and we're talking about it, you know, I, I want to say casually, but not, you know what I mean? Um, that, that it, that we're having these conversations more broadly, that people are reading about it, then, you know, I think we have a little bit more, um, conversation power with our colleagues. Well, and hopefully it normalizes it, exactly. you know, it, which will help everybody, um, to have the conversations, but particularly those that are experiencing it to know that it's, it's a very normal thing and it's nothing, nothing to be ashamed of. And it's not one of the things that I, and my, my work is definitely moving in this direction more now is this, this idea that we have to normalize talking about burnout, but we have to denormalize the culture that causes it. So it's a workplace problem. This is not an individual problem that's impacting a workplace. This is the workplace impacting people's lives with the culture and the way we do things. So we have to start, yes, we yes, we have to take care of each other. Yes, we have to have in, individual interventions for keeping ourselves well, but you can't self-care your way out of this culturally right? We have to start changing the culture to make a difference. And what are some of the most important things that go into that? If you were czar of a campus <laughs> for a day and you could change three things that oh, you gosh. think would really move the dime uh, yeah. in this regard, what would they be? Goodness, that's such a question. And that's really kind of where my thinking is starting to head because um, it is I am focusing much more on, on the context now. Um, and I don't know, well, I'm, I'm actually kind of excited because um, Christina Maslach and Michael Leiter, who are some of the original burnout researchers, um, just published a new book and they do focus on culture as um, kind of some solutions for that. So I've just started that and I'm excited to see kind of what they've come up with. Um, but they talk about, and I think this is very true, they talk about misalignments um, that cause culture problems when they it miss, there's a mismatch between the person and the workplace. Um, some of those are workload related. Some of those are values related, fairness, community, you know, so, um, how do we, how do we look at workload, you know, and, and workload doesn't just mean your course load it, you know, there's, there's so many other things that we're expected to do, um, and keep up with all the time. So there's workload issues. I think, um, values, I think is something that is crucially important because, you know, we talked about mission driven institutions, you know, a lot of places speak values or speak mission and then act in a completely different way. Right in the day-to-day. -day. So how do we, how do we align those things and actually have, you know, cultures and behaviors that actually fit those values? Because when that misalignment is there, that's rife for burnout for everyone, especially if you're, if the institution's kind of enacted values are, are clashing with your own values and morals, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's challenges there. So I think probably workload is probably a place that we need to work at, community building, 
is what we need to be looking at and values are what we need to be looking at, consistency. You, you write eloquently about some of the strategies that you have employed for overcoming burnout. And I was particularly struck by your four reflective pillars. Mm -hmm. uh, these seem to be really good practices for people to uh, employ whether they're fighting burnout or, or not. So I'm wondering if you could help unpack each of these, starting with rearticulating your purpose and values. So what what is that? How do you how do you do that? Yeah, um, I think you know I think when values when you're values driven, you have a heuristic for making decisions and for thinking about your life um, and your work. So I think all of us came into higher education for a reason, right? And we've talked about the idea of a calling. Many of us felt called to this work, called to be educators, called to be researchers. So what is it that that was behind that? You know, what, what, what skills and talents are you bringing to make what kind of impact? And, you know, why is that important to you? So I think if we can reconnect to that original purpose or re figure out what and articulate what that purpose is now for you, I think that gives you just, it gives you a foundation to work from and to make decisions from. Um, you know, my purpose had changed. The burnout had, had shifted my change, but I had already been on a trajectory that was moving toward faculty development anyway. So, you know, when it, it made sense for me to shift the purpose because I was still being an educator just in a different context um, within higher education. So I think with purpose, it's really, if we know what our values are and we have a sense of that purpose, we have a foundation for making good decisions about our work and our life and balance and those kinds of things. Great, the second, practicing compassion. Now, it sounds easy, but but how do you actually do it? <laughs> I was just going to say that's the hardest one, isn't it? Um, and I think, you know, this this one goes back to me um, kind of from the shame that comes out of burnout, I think, um, and the self-talk that can get into your head, you know, the, the shaming and the, you know, what's wrong with you and why can't you do this anymore? And, you know, it can, it can get to be so negative. And I think that we also, when we are you know, emotionally connected to the people that we serve, our students, our, our colleagues, um, it's much easier to fall into compassion fatigue over time, you know, to just get, just get exhausted and not be able to take other people on. And then we move into kind of secondary traumas and traumas. Um, so co practicing compassion is about recognizing those things right? Um, thinking about your own self-talk and how you talk to yourself. Is that the way that you would talk to a student or to a colleague or to a friend? Thinking about how you can change that, thinking about your inner dialogues and how you talk to yourself, um, but also being able to recognize when you might be falling into something like compassion fatigue, that, you know, it's, this isn't about this person. You're just, you're, you're at your limit. So let's look at strategies to deal with that so that you can still be the compassionate person that you are. Um, and not fall into more shame because you're not, you feel like you're not that compassionate anymore. Number three is seeking out connection. This one has become a lot more popular in my workshops and been a lot more requested in my workshops. Um, and, you know, I, there are obvious reasons for that. I mean, many of us felt very disconnected during the pandemic when we were all working from home. Um, and um, well, many of us were working from home, not all of us. Um, but there was there was, you know, there was mission <laughs> during the pandemic, like get the education done, make sure things students are learning. Um, and 
I think there was a lot of connection happening because we were seeing humanity in each other in very different ways. And I would love for that to continue. We're seeing signs that we're reverting back to the kind of the way it was beforehand. Um, but we, we need connection. We're human beings. We need connection. We need connection to each other. We also need connection to other pursuits outside of our, our institutions and our work um, to keep our brains healthy and to keep, you know, to, just to keep our lives fulfilling. So, you know, that's family and hobbies and pursuits and, you know, animals connecting to nature, whatever it is that, that, that fills you, um, making sure that you're making time for that. And then fourth, striving for balance. This one, I'm actually starting to reconsider a little bit. So this one is, you know, I think, because I think that word is problematic. Um, and I think a lot of what I'm talking about, I recently read a book by Matthew Kelly, I believe, who talked more about work-life satisfaction than balance. Um, that when we talk about balance, what we're really talking about is an absence of satisfaction. Um, so how do we quote unquote balance the different areas of our lives so that we are feeling satisfied and we are feel, feeling fulfilled, knowing that that's not, there's not a 50-50 balance of work life at any point. That's an arbitrary, like, why are we even talking about that? You know, we're, it's all one life. Um, so thinking about how do we bring how do we bring our purpose to what we do? How do we bring our compassion and our connection with other others and other beings and other, you know, interests? And how do we put that in motion that, you know, sometimes that's going to mean working more. And if, the, if that's happy for you and driving you and there's a project that you're in love with, and sometimes that's going to mean spending more time with family or on a different pursuit. Um, so I think it's, it's maybe, maybe it's removing that sense of, of like work-life 50-50 balance and really thinking about what satisfaction looks like instead. Tell us about your new, your new work at Georgia Tech. I'm, I'm very impressed that uh, your institution is investing to such mm -hmm. an extent in faculty professional development. So tell us more about what you do there and what, what your vision is for yeah. the work. Yeah, so um, so I lead the Office of Fa Faculty Professional Development under the Vice Provost for Faculty, which is also a new position um, under a new provost. So um, and there were there were absolutely some wonderful people doing faculty professional development before it became an official office and there was a directorship, um, those kinds of things. Um, and they were doing great work, but they were also doing other things. So I now focus completely on faculty professional development. Um, and like you mentioned earlier, that covers everything that's not teaching related, teaching and learning related, and which this, our Center for Teaching and Learning handles. It's a little bit of a strange kind of split between those two. Sometimes you'll see that a lot of times those two things are merged. Um, but I am an office of one um, with a fantastic supervisor who's eminently supportive um, of the work that we do. And our goal really is to help our faculty create satisfying, productive careers and and want to stay as a Georgia Tech faculty member for their career um, to find to, to find a home here. Um, so I do, you know, my background obviously is as a writer. I'm a writing professor, my writing PhD. Um, so I love working with faculty writers. I run writing retreats, virtual writing retreats. I work with writing scholars. Um, so we really dig into their writing processes um, and, and grow in, in that way. Um, we're running some mentorship development work um, programming. We do you know, your standard kind of professional development workshops on managing your email and saying no. Um, we're doing some things about writing productivity and writing pipelines and strategic planning next semester. Um, we're moving more into leadership development work. 
Um, that's a, that's a, we're, we'll be taking some programs in from other areas. I think soon um, we'll be doing more with that. Um, we also, I, my office also runs all of the uh, new faculty orientation and extended orientation um, work during the year. So we run programming for our new faculty to make sure that they have us have a good kind of sense and foundation for, for being at the institution and, and how things are done and where to look for different things um, so that they feel members of the community as well. So it's a, it's a lot of different stuff all the time. It's every day is different, um, but I wouldn't have that any other way. What a great opportunity for you. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I'm really happy. Yeah. So, well, good luck with, good Thank luck you. with all that. Is there anything, Rebecca, I did not ask you that you would like listeners to know either about your journey or about some of the other things that you're doing. You're also an executive coach. That's how you and mm -hmm. I first met mm -hmm. um, in a coaching coaching program. So I know you're you're doing more with that mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, I do a lot of coaching um, internally for our faculty. That's one of the another major service that my offer my my office offers for faculty, and that's a wonderful way to help faculty think about strategically planning their next few years or dealing with a difficult, you know, situation or how to, you know, build a good lab structure, you know, people structure. Yeah, we talked about values and, you know, it, Georgia Tech really, we, uh, with a new president and new provost, they double down on values and they really, they talk them, they live them um, mm -hmm. and they're putting their money where their mouth is on a lot of them. So it's a, it's a great time to be at Georgia Tech. Yeah, well, that's terrific, and uh, I I wish you all the best. And I'm going to look for uh, your next book uh, <laughs> to come okay. out at some point, but no pressure. I don't want to put any pressure on you. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, take care. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of an Ingenious You. This is Melissa Morris-Olson, your host. We are very excited about our season four conversations. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. I invite you to visit our website for the Center for Higher Education, Leadership and Innovative Practice at baypath.edu slash chelip, C-H-E-L-I-P, where you will find information about our monthly free leading edge thinking and higher education webinars, as well as our just launched YouTube channel, where you'll find full video interviews with our most highly rated conversations from previous seasons. And while on this site, you can subscribe so you don't miss out on the release of new content and upcoming webinars. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening.